Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is Addison Peacock, and you're listening to The Wicked Library. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Well, hello there. I'm Daniel Foytek, and this is Season 11, Episode 15 of The Wicked Library. I hope you've been enjoying the season so far and have enjoyed our amazing guest hosts. We'll be having another round of guests in the coming months. Today, we'll be presenting a story written for us by TWL alum author Nora B. Peavy, entitled Children of the Dream Root. Now, before we dive in, a sincere thank you to those of you supporting the show on Patreon. You truly make the show possible. It's because of your support that I can continue to pay the very talented authors, voice actors, and composer. Simply, it's your support that allows us to make sure those who contribute to the show do not work for free. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. 
lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on your support to help me pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing that you're part of making the show possible, you also get fun rewards like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's story is told by G.P. McKenzie, accompanied by a custom score by Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Now, sit back and get ready for a dark ride as we join Amelin, who's faced with the decision of using her gift to overthrow a cruel reptilian race from beyond the stars and save the children of the Dream Root. bared their ancient roots, stretching their gnarled, leathery feet, groping for water. But it had been weeks, almost an entire moon cycle since my people had dreamed the rain. I stood, shivering in my utilitarian gray jumpsuit, an awkward fourteen-year-old, all legs and arms, so tiny beneath the gaze of the orange moon. As I darted to where my beloved cat, Toshio, lay buried by a shiny white stone, I snuck quick glances to my left and right, searching for the reptilians. None followed me, and I sank to my knees, exhausted, feeling the heat from the day radiating from the once violet ground of my home, Aina. Now, the earth is a lavender gray, starved for nutrients. The reptilians ravaged our land for Kosa, which grew abundantly in the north, and kept the purple topsoil nourished with manganese and iron oxides, lichen and microalgae, from being whipped away by the wind. If my people did not use the dream root soon, the rains would not come. The trees would die. The animals would go thirsty and die. And so would we. Aina would be a wasteland. I placed a tiny pebble on Toshio's grave, so he would know I had not forgotten him. I bit down on the rough collar of my canvas jumpsuit to keep from crying too much. The salt of my sweat stung my split lip as I struggled to forget the night Yaldbioth drank Toshio's blood as punishment for me showing up late to work in the biodome. I will never forget you. I gritted my teeth and clenched my fist. I started at the snap of a twig behind me. Amalin, what are you doing out here? It was Taliyama, one of my clan mothers. Taliyama, I needed to get away, to remember. I dug my hand into the earth and let the dust fall through my fingers. This is not the way to remember, Amalin. We must hold on to who we were as a people before the scourge. We cannot live in the past. Taliyama touched my shoulder. I can't. Yes, you can, my little bird. Now come away from here before they find us both missing. I prepared dinner for you at home. 
our shift begins soon enough. We must be there for roll call. Yes, Taliyama. I kissed the other pebble I had brought and placed it on Toshio's mound. I'll be along in a few more minutes. Okay, child. Taliyama kissed the top of my head and headed home. If I had listened to Taliyama, I would be safe in our hut eating dinner. But I did not. I had to discover what happened to my best friend in the Med Dome. The reptilians took her from the Biodome yesterday afternoon, and she had not come home. The Med Dome looked like a giant white egg squatting on the earth. I crouched beside some scrub brush and waited until I heard voices approaching. It was Inanna, the lead cognitive neuroscientist, and her new assistant, Iresh Kigal. I shivered as they marched past my hiding place. I was close. I could see the faded purple dust on their combat boots. Silent as a deer, I crept in after them, thankful the lights were dimmed. I snuck onto a med cart draped in sterile hospital linen, settled Indian style, and cautiously pulled back the sheet. As I did so, I felt something tickling my hand. To my horror, I saw a bright red centipede about two inches long and as thick as a reed of grass. I inhaled, taking deep breaths, trying not to focus on the skittering sensation of the centipede on my skin. The air I inhaled was not as cool as I expected, and I detected a base alkaline scent. It reminded me of moist algae and wet cement. I craned my neck and saw a row of clear acrylic tanks with bodies submerged in them. The two female reptilians approached the first tank. These reptilians were educated like our people before they destroyed our libraries. They were from a higher caste of reptilians, so they didn't have tails. The taller was Anna. She was a fierce beauty, with high cheekbones and blue speckled scales. Her body was a work of art, every athletic line lithe and created for movement. Her assistant, Iresh Kigal, was the opposite, a foot shorter and with thicker limbs. Her face was a mixture of browns and creams, and her upturned nose resembled the western hog noses that I'd seen from my brother's travels. I felt tiny legs crawling over the back of my neck and down my jumper. I pinched my lips together to keep from screaming as the centipede emerged from around my right ear and traveled down my arm towards the white slop bucket swarming with hundreds of undulating bodies. A rank, sour stench emanated from the bucket. Giving it a quick glance, I saw pieces of rotting flesh, swollen and festering chunks of fingers, tails, and noses covered in crusty bright yellow barnacles. The yellow fungus was killing the reptilians. Inanna's voice was beautiful as she lectured her assistant. We've managed to rid the wild land of Kosu, the dream root, and are growing it under controlled conditions in the biodome next door. I've chosen to harvest only the most potent plants with the highest concentration of saponins. Saponins come from the root of the Kosu plant. They have a bitter taste and are the plant's defense mechanism against bacteria, fungi, and predators. Mixing water with the roots forms a foam. Currently, the chemistry of the plant is unknown but it is believed saponins cause anerogenic effects, otherwise known as lucid dreaming. And 
How does this benefit us finding a cure? Erishkigal asked. The Ainans have used the dream root for thousands of years for lucid dreaming. In such a state, they've kept this tiny planet alive, dreaming the environment they needed to thrive. The rain, the trees, the plants, the animals. All of it exists only because they dream it. But they haven't been able to dream since we harvested all the kosa. There's been rapid physical weathering. The dark purple topsoil has blown away, leaving behind depleted lavender gray soil. Nothing will grow. The animals and trees will die. Arishkagal consulted the information on her clipboard. That is not our concern. Our assignment is to discover how we can use the Kosa route and to take this knowledge back to the council. But what about the people? Arishkagal asked. What about them? Most will die of rapid disease without proper nutrients, and a few will be transported with us as test subjects, if our findings are favorable. I strained to hear the conversation as they walked further away to the other side of the lab, willing myself not to scream as I watched a rather large centipede munching a piece of reptilian flesh. Inanna continued her lecture. It takes approximately one week for subjects to start dreaming clearly. How does the connection between the two subjects work? We've taken subject A, the Anan, and infected them with a modified version of the yellow fungus. Since humans are descended from our genetic labs, we have similar brain function. We've harvested electroplaques from a family of fish called mormorids and created a cable for electrical communication between subjects. Mormorids use electroplaques to communicate with each other. Electroplaques are a bioelectric organ like a battery, arranged in flattened cells in parallel rows that build up voltage and deliver electric discharge by timing the nervous impulses that activate the electroplaques to work as one organ. We inject electrocytes into both patients to facilitate the conduction of electricity and stimulate subject A's hippocampus to trigger the lucid dreaming sequence. The hippocampus is the part of the brain associated with learning and memory. By having the two patients connected directly to each other's hippocampus with a mormorid cable, subject A can access the ancestral memories of subject B and hopefully glean some distant memory our species has forgotten, helping us cure this disease. We have not figured out a way to make the Kosa a safe topical medicine to battle the yellow fungus. There was a long pause, and I shifted my weight to my left knee. I needed to pee, and wouldn't be able to hold it much longer. The bucket of medwaste and supping centipedes was not an option. There was no way in Gehenna my lady parts were going near a centipede's mandibles. I hope the two scientists left soon, or the wet trail of my bladder might give me away. I had to find out as much information as I could, though because Anan slaves weren't allowed access to the med dome unless it was to dispose of medical waste or disinfect the floors and tanks. Everything else, like surgical drills or anything sharp that could be used as a weapon, was carefully logged and cleaned by autoclave under strict supervision, as I had learned last week on med duty. All reptilians were armed with TS-4s, lethal ray guns that were no match for a surgical scalpel anyway winced as my bladder ached. We will keep them all in the dreaming state for one week, then wake them. Hopefully, 
By then they will be able to tell us something that will help. And Anna paused. What if they can't? Huh. Then we will destroy them. By then the virus will be too advanced to perform a third trial. The strain of yellow fungus we are using is more virulent than the last. It keeps mutating, which makes it even more dangerous. And Anna frowned. But then, why aren't we sick? Irish Kigal asked. As far as we have deduced, the fungus enters through an open wound. If we take normal operating precautions when in direct contact with the subjects, we should be fine. And how do we dispose of the patients after the experiment is completed? Irish Kigal's voice wavered. We shoot them. And Anna paused again. I would like you to dispose of the bio-waste on this medical cart. My breath stopped in my throat. I ducked, hiding my eyes behind a fringe of dark hair, and hid myself as still as the totem in the center of my clan's meeting lodge. Thankfully, the long sheet gave me shadows to hide my feet in, and it covered most of my body, and the light was dim. I dared not move. Yes, Inanna. I must warn you. It's a bit unsavory. Somehow, centipedes infiltrated the med dome, searching for food and shelter in the spring weather. They're feeding on the bio-waste, but I'm fairly certain they will not bite you, as they've found another meal. <laughs> I heard Anna's callous laughter ring out. One last question about the experiment. How are we keeping the subjects alive while submerged? I heard Anna's voice grow louder as she neared the cart. We found a wonderful little creature called a sarcopterus, an invertebrate that fits snugly over the mouth and nostrils and breathes for them underwater. We should get going. We're late for third meal. I'm happy to have you as my apprentice. Tlaluk says you are a quick learner and a keen observer. If you work hard, perhaps someday you may advance to the role of head scientist after I retire. But for now, let's get to the mess hall. I sighed after they left and crept out from my hiding place. Stiff from crouching on the cart, I stretched and found an empty bucket to relieve myself. I was alone, finally. Alone in a room with fifty or sixty bodies in a coma. The fifth tank held my girlfriend and childhood best friend, Anna. She was my first kiss, my first everything. I gazed at her shell-pink lips ravaged by a bright yellow bloom of fungus. The fungus resembled a chain of volcanoes across her arched brow, and one piece shaped like a barnacle clung to a paper-thin bluish eyelid. Her beautiful jet-black hair floated about her naked brown body like seaweed. Her feet were spared from the disease, and I could see the big crooked toe of her right foot. She hated her feet. She thought they were ugly but I loved them because they were a part of her. A tear slid over my trembling lips. Oh, Anna, I whispered. I dared not touch her for fear of getting sick. I could not afford to get sick. Anna, I am going to find a way to fix this. I will. I love you. As I turned to leave, I thought I saw her finger twitch, but I couldn't stay any longer and risk being caught. I wiped the tears from my cheeks. I didn't turn to visit with any of the other patients. They were all my friends and family from the village. 
I hurried through the airlock and into the shadows of the scrub brush, my head darting left and right to reassure myself I remained alone. Then I headed back to the women's lodge where Talia Ma waited, silhouetted in the doorway by the light of the fire, smoke curling up and out of the lodge like prayers to the gods, orange sparks dancing in the night. Amelin? She handed me a smooth bone bowl with lukewarm broth and a tiny bit of animal fat. I ate the fat first, scooping it out and licking my fingers. I drank the broth in two gulps and handed the bowl back to Taliyama and bowed my head to her. My dear child, Taliyama smoothed my hair and pressed me to her. I could smell the comforting smoke of the cooking fire she tended and the licorice and peppermint salve she used on her aching bones. One of these nights, Emmeline, they are going to catch you, and I won't be there to save you. She patted my back as I sobbed into the fur robe she wore, draped across her shoulders. I know, Taliyama, but I must try to help in some way. You know I can't just sit back and watch them take everyone we love and destroy our home. Aye, child, I know, I know. Now come to bed. It's late, and the sun will be up early. Taliyama led me to an open place on our sleeping bench. I lay down and let her cover me with furs against the chill. The fire crackled. Sleep now, Emmeline, she crooned to me as I drifted off, comforted by the presence of all the other women lying there in the firelight, some of us snoring. It was almost like home before the reptilians came. The transparent biodome, unlike all the other domes resembling opaque bubbles, popped up from the bare landscape. It was squelching hot under the gaze of Aina's blue sun, and our captors had mounted two industrial street fans above the front and back airlocks. There were five reptilian guards with TS-4s, two at the front airlock, two at the back, and one overseer who sat on a gleaming metal platform in the middle of the COSA field, eating grapes one by one as we worked, tending the plants. His name was Tlaloc, and he was the cruelest of the guards, often having his way with the woman in exchange for an extra glass of water during break time, or beating the children with a riding crop he called Old Red because of the bloody stripes he left with his calling card. I worked on the north side of the plot, checking the new seedlings with shiny, fresh leaves to see if they were ready to plant. The reptilians required massive amounts of hallucinogenic plants for their lab experiments and had developed a process using new technology allowing the plants to mature within a few days' time. You there! Tlaloc stood up from his chair, pointing at an old woman bent almost in half. His voice rang out like steel on stone. Why have you stopped picking? We all tried to catch glimpses of the woman, but we dared not stop working for fear of being beaten, or worse. The air felt thick as cream. Nobody answered Tlaloc. Only the snick-snick of foraging blades on green stems and the rustle of fresh-cut leaves entering burlap sacks broke the silence. I said, why are you not working, old woman? Tlaloc stepped down from the platform, his sharp teeth glinting his hand on his TS-4 as he advanced. The mottled red scales on his face darkened in anger. His nostrils flared as I ran to the old lady's side. You! 
He looked at me as if I were an insect to be crushed beneath his boot. Why did you leave your station? I drew myself up as tall as I could to the chest of this towering Neanderthal. I refused to show fear, because that's what he wanted. He thrived on it. This woman is from my clan. I know her. She is Oma in my... Her heart. The heat is too much. Indeed, too much, as I felt the sweat gathering at the waistband of my heavy jumper. I wiped a soggy strand of hair from my face, leaving a faint purple streak of dirt on my forehead. You will take over for her while she rests, Tlaloc said, leaning over me so he could get a better view down the front of my jumper. He flicked his forked tongue against my ear. I could feel his hot breath as he whispered. One day I will slit your throat and drink your blood sweet as honey. He stood up straight and adjusted his belt, keeping his hand on his TS-4. What are you all looking at? Back to work, all of you. And you. He pointed to a woman on my right. Take this woman for some water. I want both of you back here in 15 minutes, he hollered, gesturing at their backs as they scurried away. He turned in the direction of his platform, and I picked up the old woman's foraging knife and bag, my shaking fingers searching for where the stem met the mother plant so I could cut. I licked the sweat from my upper lip. I'd like to geld him with one of these, Taliyama sneered, but I know they would just torture one of us in retaliation. This is how they kept us obedient, by fear of force. As I continued clipping stems from the kosu, I saw Shinama slip a few stems of kosu into her jumper, but she wasn't quick enough. The two guards from the back rushed towards us. We all stepped back with our hands held high as they emptied Shinama's pockets on the ground. You filthy lizards! Shinama spat on their boots as they cuffed her arms behind her and dragged her on her knees to Tlaloc's platform, cursing and shrieking. My heart pounding like a war drum, I searched the ground. There, the Kosa. I shook my head slightly and mouthed, Don't draw attention to me, as Taliyama raised an inquisitive eyebrow. Shainama refused to climb the stairs by herself, and it was enough of a commotion for me to slip my foot over the fallen Kosa clippings and drop to the ground to tie my boot lace. I secreted the leaves inside my sock and breathed a sigh of relief as I stood and found nobody but Taliyama had witnessed my act of rebellion. I took Taliyama's shaking hand and clasped it in mine. Shainama lay sprawled with her face in the dirt, her back heaving. Tlaloc pressed a button on the arm of his chair, and a tall, T-shaped metal structure rose from the platform, with thick metal chains swaying and clinking from each of the arms. Don't look, I told Taliyama. Unfortunately, we were close enough to see everything. I have to look. She's my friend. Taliyama's voice wavered as her fingernails dug into the palm of my hand. The sun glared overhead, almost directly above us. 
The whirring of the industrial fans could not drown out the creaking of the rising metal structure. Every muscle tensed in my neck and back. I bit the inside of my cheek and tasted blood. We were packed in like cattle, so close to the platform, and I smelled the ripe sweat of bodies around me. Talia Ma and I were in the front. Get up and walk the stairs, you pathetic grub. Klaluk leaned down over Shana Ma as she panted. I focused on the image of his black boot, dusty with purple earth, to avoid looking at her face. Get up! His forked tongue flicked her cheek and she grimaced. He grabbed her by the scruff of the neck with one meaty, scaly hand, his yellow eyes blazing, and yanked her up the steps like a rag doll, her knees knocking against every metal riser. She gritted her teeth as he frog-marched her to the middle of the platform beneath the T-structure. You will face your people the same way you came into this world. He removed a pair of shares from his belt and split the front of her jumpsuit to the waist, then stripped the rest of the fabric from her body. She stood defiant, her tawny skin shining in the sun, searching the crowd until she saw Taliyama, and her mouth quivered a little, the teardrops sliding down her face. Tlaloc grabbed her chin, and Shainama recoiled at his touch. He squeezed her jaw. His great chest heaved as he fastened the manacles around Shana Ma's slim ankles. Typhon and Heineck, hoist her up! Tlaloc nodded towards two of his guards now on the platform. They rushed to man the pulleys, raising Shana Ma inch by inch until she swung naked and upside down. Arms linked, eyes closed, her black and silver hair streaming below her like a graceful diver poised for a moment before breaking the surface of the water. Do you have any last words, my little larva? Tlala kissed her cheek, and she wrenched her head away, setting herself swinging. I turned to look at Taliyama as she cried. My palms stung, and a warm trickle of blood ran down my wrist, where Taliyama's nails cut deep. This is what happens to thieves! Klaluk cried out as he drew his dagger and slit Shainama's throat. She choked and struggled and twisted, her body jerking as her life bled. Klaluk stood underneath Shainama, his head held back, mouth open, razor-sharp teeth bathed red, fat ruby drops glistening on his face. A garnet lake spread beneath her hanging corpse. The stench of copper and iron filled the dome. Her skin, once so brown and loved by the sun, now an ashy clay. This is all you are good for, he addressed us, catching my eye at the front of the platform. You are blood to feast on whenever we wish, he grinned, blood drunk. Heineck, Typhon, yes sir, they shouted in unison. Get this mess cleaned up and call in reinforcements in case the food gets any ideas. I'm going to shower and change. The rest of you maggots, back to work. Now! He bellowed. He winked at me over his shoulder as he made a hasty exit, and I shivered. Give me the kosa. Taliyama held her hand out, darting quick glances about us to see if anyone watched. 
I took the stems from my sock and pressed them into Talia Ma's hands. She drew the long arms of her fur robe over her hands and sat down on her sleeping bench. The firelight played shadows over her face, giving her the appearance of a skull. I shuddered and watched, silent, as she wedged the precious kosa between two branches of the lodge wall behind her sleeping place. It was dangerous what you did, Amalyn. I know, Talia Ma. I diverted my gaze from her face as a sign of respect for my elder. I am not sorry. Talia Ma smiled at me and I saw peace in her face. Something I hadn't seen in a long time since the reptilians had invaded Tamaris Lepul. The only day we are given to ourselves. You and I must go to the cave of ancestral spirits. It is past time you went shadow swimming. Taliyama patted my knee. I had a visit from your mother in dream time. Normally you'd have a great ceremony and three days of preparation, after which you'd be promised to a boy. But time is quickening. Anna needs you now, Amelin. Taliyama took both my hands in hers and I felt how age twisted her knuckles. I wanted to cry as she pulled me close. Shh, little one. Don't be afraid. Tomorrow all of us will walk with you. She poured me a mug of mugwort tea. Drink this and dream. Dawn is fast approaching. Morning came, and with it a slight breeze playing against the woman's lodge. I lay in my furs. I felt different. Taller perhaps, more centered with the knowledge I was going to the ancestral cave. As tradition served, I did not eat, but drank a mug of warm tea. Not that there was much to eat if I was hungry. Taliyama and I began our walk to the ancient cave beside the sea. It was quite a walk from the village and I was glad for it, though also sad. As we neared the path at the end of the forest, I heard Tlaloc berating one of his slaves. We had gotten special permission on the premise of gathering some new medicines that might help the reptilians. Why is it so hard for mouth breathers to keep a good shine on boots? This infernal purple dust gets into everything. It itches like a mother beast. Every night I soak my skin and the godforsaken dirt turns my bath the color of mulberry wine. If only I could drink it and forget this blasted place. Tlaloc sneered at me, flaring his nostrils as we passed. Taliyama and I stifled a laugh, our shoulders shaking as we slipped into the trees. It was good to find small moments of levity, or I would have gone crazy over a month ago. We walked in silence past the char pits in the woods, where our loved ones were burnt and disposed. Blackened bones, bits of melted hair covered in ashes, the gleam of teeth against cinders, all reminded me how our people had fought the reptilians when they first landed. Huge mass graves scarred the bare forest floor. The area smelled like burnt fingernails and greasy human fat. More than half my people died in the first days after the reptilians arrived. The reptilians stripped the earth and burned the forest floor, 
leaving no plants for us to eat, no kosu to use for dreaming. Here and there, a few tender green shoots pushed through the ashes of the char pits. Trees drooped their branches, thirsty and searching for water. The forest lay silent. We encountered emaciated animals with roomy eyes, sick and thirsty. They barely ran from us. A dog, all skin and bones, followed at our heels, hoping for something to eat. I hadn't seen a domesticated animal in a while. Most perished after the reptilians took them, or died of neglect without owners. I bent down and rubbed his soft brown mangy ears, pressing my face to his starved belly as I crooned to him. Amelin, we must go. You have something important to do. I met the dog's brown, watery gaze and chewed him away with guilt in my heart. The breeze off the sea after we left the forest was cooler than in the village, smelling of shellfish and wet sand. I turned my face up to the sun. Come here, child. This is no time to play. Taliyama scolded me as she waited before the dark, cold entrance to the cave. It looked like the mouth to hell. Don't be afraid, Amelin. This is the dwelling of our ancestors. You have nothing to fear. Drink this. She handed me a bone cup from the fur she'd laid on the ground. I took it and sat beside her, sniffing the contents. It was mahakia, a type of kava used for its euphoric and relaxation benefits. Soon, my muscles began to feel like jelly. Wow, Taliyama brewed a very strong tea. Taliyama smirked as she began to undress me. Quit grinning like an idiot and eat this. She shoved a piece of shark meat in my mouth. I hadn't eaten shark in so long. My mouth watered. It was mild and sweet-tasting. Very subtle, firm and meaty. Not as tender as a bird, but moist. I chewed and swallowed, my stomach growling for more. Where had she found shark meat? It had been weeks since anything tasted of home. The reptilians rarely gave us any protein, and we were forbidden to fish or hunt. My people lived off the last of their winter stores, digging for slugs and grubs, which barely filled bellies. It would not matter much longer, anyway. Forbidden to use the dream root, our planet was dying, because we could not manifest what she needed. The reptilians were parasites to the land, sucking her dry. Soon, nothing would be left, and they would leave for other star systems. Taliyama rubbed me vigorously with thick, yellow, pungent shark oil. My skin felt slick and shone in the sun. She dipped her fingers in a shallow bone dish and drew a spiral in purple clay on both my cheeks. So you remember the cycle of life has no ending and no beginning. Then she drew the tree of life on my belly and beneath it, the same drawing upside down. As above, so below, Taliyama finished by marking me with her thumbprint in the middle of my forehead. So your eyes shall open. She led me to the mouth of the cave. Dark and chilly, it smelled of brine and sea life. I tasted the ocean on my lips. Taliyama took my smooth hand in her wrinkled palm. It felt warm and tender. Repeat after me, Amalin. 
She straightened her shoulders back, and the wind whipped her hair about like a sea temptress. My ancestors wild and free, she intoned in a low voice. My ancestors wild and free, I repeated after her. I felt the sand between my toes as I shifted my weight. Guide me on my journey, she chanted. Open my eyes that I might see and whisper your knowledge unto me. For the truth I ask by the power of three by three. As I will, so mote it be. As I will, so mote it be, I finished after her. Go, child, and do not linger, for some spirits mean you harm. Look for the lights to set you on your path, and take this. She pressed the bowl of purple clay to my naked chest. You must leave your print on the wall so you can find your way back to the physical world. She smoothed my hair behind my ears, like she had done so many times when I was a child, after my mother passed. She cradled my chin in her loving hands. I have faith in you, Amalyn. And then she nodded toward the dark entrance. I stepped into the cave of my ancestors, the bone bowl clutched to my breast, the sand rough and damp beneath my feet. I heard the shush-shushing of the water traveling into the cave from the sea. Only a few hours remained before the tide filled this place to the roof. Shaking with cold, I was glad for the shark oil protecting my skin from the wind blowing and the cold sea I waded into. As I approached the first bend in the cave, I marveled at all the handprints left behind by my people and remembered the bowl of purple clay I carried. I pressed my left hand into the bowl, the cool clay drawing away the heat of my nervousness. I waded a little further in, near a natural shelf in the cave wall where others had left their bowls. I found an empty niche in the rock wall and set down my bowl, pressing my handprint into the cool rock. I was surrounded by hundreds of my ancestors' palm prints, overlapping as far as I could see before the light from the mouth of the cave faded. I felt my ancestors pulling me through time, darkness pressing against me like a giant cat, smothering me, threatening to snatch my breath away. The kava had taken full effect by now. My mind and body remained calm, even though I should have been afraid. As I walked further on, the sandbar dropped out from beneath my feet, and I scrabbled for purchase with my toes, but found none. The shark oil talia moss slathered on my skin barely insulated me from the icy black waters, and my teeth began to chatter, but I could not turn back. Hundreds of boys and girls before me had entered the cave and found their ancestral spirit, who revealed their gifts and what clan they would marry into. I could not fail where so many others succeeded. My people needed me. I treaded water to get my bearings. It would be easy to get turned around in the dark water and become lost forever. Some did not emerge from the cave. I tried not to panic and waste energy, imagining them lying on the floor of their watery grave their bones becoming a garden of kelp, their hair swaying with the tide, 
Their jaws open in silent screams no one ever heard. Tiny red ghost fish swimming through their empty eye sockets. Maybe the kava was no longer working. No, this would not be my fate. I would not die here in this cave. Not after all I had borne witness to since the war against the reptilians had begun. I would remember for my people, for generations to come, what happened here the day the reptilians invaded our planet. I breathed in through my nose and out through my mouth, censuring myself, the taste of brine thick in the air. I heard water dripping on stone somewhere in front of me and breaststroked in that direction. My pupils had adjusted to the dark, and I saw a faint light up ahead from above. I could see different shades of black as I swam forward, some denser than others. Stalactites clung to the ceiling. Something large scuttled overhead, its heavy body scraping against rock. I swam face first, unexpectedly, into a stalactite and a whip spider. Amazingly, it had adapted to the chilly environment. I held my breath. The two-foot spider extended its two long antennae-like front legs, searching for prey. It walked a few inches closer to my face than I was comfortable with, but I was afraid if I startled it, it would jump on my face. I noted the pair of eyes at the front of its carapace, and two smaller groups of three eyes further back on each side of its head. Its body was broad and mottled gray to blend into its cave dwelling and defend itself from predators. Its raptorial front pedipalps were modified for grabbing prey with mantis-like speed, with huge, pincer-like chalicerae, to grind and chew its dinner. From what I remembered from reading and spelunking as a child, they normally did not attack, unless irritated. I had no plans on irritating my leggy cave companion, and skirted around the stalactite it clung to, and found myself in a glowing green fairyland. I had not seen anything so beautiful in a long time. Hundreds of bioluminescent glowworms hung suspended from shining webs, as delicate as the spun sugar my mother made from the bingaman trees in spring. The sweet memory made my mouth water, and just as I began to smile, I felt something cold and rough bump my thigh hard enough to dunk me underwater. Floundering, I spluttered gasping for air, just in time to see a giant sea creature with glowing blue eyes, possibly six feet long, undulating toward me like an eel. It opened its mouth to reveal an alarming number of trident-shaped teeth set in vertical rows of three. As its jaws closed around my arm, I saw frilled gills. Was it some weird type of shark eel? It took me deeper and deeper into the dark waters, twisting and thrashing me like a dog with a rabbit. Just when my lungs were about to give out, it nudged me onto the distant shore of the cave I had not seen yet. I lay gasping and coughing, sprawled on a soft bed of glittering purple sand. I could see a faint shaft of light coming from above, through what looked to be an exit. Disoriented from my violent ride to shore, I knelt and tried to focus on the rock wall before me, who had painted all these pictures? So many animals and people holding weapons or hunting. My blood froze as I saw a large flying ship on top of a pyramid 
like the ruins to the north of our village. Giant lizards towered over tiny people, shooting their large staffs of light. All around me the voices of my ancestors howled in anguish. Remember, child, remember why you are here. So much pain, so much suffering. Help them enter the sacred cave so they can rest. It is so cold here. It's so dark. We can't see the stars. When will you call us back? Some of the spirits appeared as they'd perished. Flesh curled black and blistered red, waterlogged and fish-eaten, missing their cheeks and lips, burnt holes in their chests through which I saw the rock drawings behind them, blackened bones offering their skulls up to me, bones clacking and rattling as they whirled around me faster and faster. Screams tore from my throat until it burned hot as coals. The shades gnashed their teeth, grabbing at my skin, pinching and biting me, raising red welts in my arms and legs. The cave shook and I fell on my side, cradling my head to protect my face as my ancestors' banshee cries echoed in the cave, an avalanche of sound. Then it all stopped. Just like that. I knelt on wobbly knees and saw the visage of Pueo, the owl, and Moa, the chicken, in glowing supernatural lines on the cave wall. I craved water, and I wanted to leave this place. Naked and scraped red and covered in sand, my hair an eagle's nest, I struggled to climb up the sharp, rocky incline towards the sunlight. I cut my feet and bruised my knees. I tore my fingernails to the quick, but I kept going until I emerged from the cave, the blue light from the sun burning my retinas as my eyes watered. I hugged the earth and sobbed, surprised I had any water left in me. My lips cracked, and I tasted iron on my tongue. I heard one lone bird singing. Just one. Then I looked up and saw Taliyama laying a fur gently over my broken body. She gave me a wooden cup filled with water, and I sipped it, savoring the sweet, cool feeling. Taliyama sat beside me and drew her knees underneath her like a young girl. Come, child, come sit in my lap, and we will unsnarl your hair and put some calendula salve on your wounds. I'll brew you some willow tea for the pain when we get home. Tell me what you saw. She pulled a shell comb from the pocket of her jumpsuit. I saw Pueo and Moa. I saw our ancestors. They are suffering, and I know what I have to do. You have experienced Moeuhane, night experiences of the soul. You are reborn now, with the knowledge embedded deep inside you to lead your people. Moa, the chicken, gives you the magic to use, and Pueo, the owl, will guide you with wisdom and protect you on your journey. We will talk about a good match for you another time. Now, we have work to do. Taliyama laughed. Seriously, Taliyama? Our world is ending and you're worried about who I'm going to marry? <laughs> I did not tell her I would never marry because I was going to live with a woman. Hush now and put on your clothes. We must hurry back for dinner. 
there is much to discuss and you look like hell. <laughs> well, I've been through hell, I stated. I leaned on her as we traveled back through the forest towards our village. I woke early in my bed before everyone else and lay thinking about tonight. I was not afraid to die. I knew there was life after death. I was afraid of failure. It was not an option for my people. I went to work in the biodome and used the day to plan in my head. When the workday was over, Taliyama and I rushed back to our lodge. I took my mother's bones from the ceremonial wrapping stored near my sleeping place and asked her for guidance. When it was done, I kissed her skull, and then I put on the pueo necklace she had always worn. The carved abalone totem comforted me. Taliyama tied a dried chicken foot on a leather thong around my neck. She kissed both my cheeks smoothing my hair. Moa will show you the way, and Poya will protect you, Amalin. Thank you, Taliyama. I bowed my head, hiding my flushed cheeks behind my hair. Word has been passed around the village, and we are all ready to fight with you. Here's the Kosa tea. She handed me a carved wooden jar with a leather cap stretched over it. My fingers curled around the warmth of the jar. Odd, I should be shaking, though I felt centered and calm. I had the sneaking suspicion Taliyama had slipped something soothing into my evening soup. I smiled as I left the women's lodge, hopefully for the last time as a slave. I patted the small shell blade in my pocket. Good luck. Thank you, Taliyama. I nodded at the two men waiting outside for me, Dana and his father Taneda. We didn't encounter any guards until we reached the med dome. It glowed a blinding white beneath the full moon. I crouched behind the dried scrub brush again, wishing for a new moon and a cloak of darkness. Dana leaned on his da as they approached the two guards outside the med dome. He puked up the winterberry, the color of sick he'd been chewing. He groaned and stumbled, his eyes rolling back in his head. Taneda held up his left arm, the one not supporting Dana. Please, can someone help my son? Please. The guards exchanged a look and got up from their chairs. They were both lean and muscular, with large green scales covering their bodies and long, slender, whip-like tails. Tails meant grunt soldiers, with less military training from a lower case, so they should be easier for Dana and Taneda to fight. What's wrong with him? One guard asked. I, I don't know, Taneda answered. Dana collapsed on the ground, faking a seizure. Taneda knelt before his son. Help me, please! The two guards knelt beside Dana and Taneda. My friends put them in chokeholds and snapped their necks before they even drew their TS-4s. Dana and Taneda each grasped a TS-4 and entered the med dome. I waited outside, still in the scrub brush. A minute or two later, Dana popped his head out the airlock. Come on, he whispered. I scuttled inside the med dome, crouching and running at the same time, and breathed a sigh of relief. 
We have 15 minutes before guard change, Dana said. I glanced over at Inanna and Urishkagal, propped up against the wall of the dome. The holes in their chests still smoked and they both wore expressions of shock. The nauseous stink of burning flesh soured my stomach. I sat on the floor and felt the cold tile beneath me, inhaling through my nose and exhaling through my mouth, letting go of all doubt and fear. Then I uncapped the Kosa brew. Thank you, Earth Mother, for giving me this gift to heal my people. I honor you and my ancestors. May you guide me and give me strength for the battle to come. Outside, I heard the call of Pueo, and I knew my guides were present. I kissed the chicken foot around my neck. Moa, give me your magic. Then I drank the kosa and waited. Eyes closed, I inhaled seven times and drew energy from deep within the heart of the earth where the spirit of the dream root originated. Bright, luminescent green roots of energy snaked and twisted up through the earth, through the tiled floor I sat on, through the soles of my shoes and into my feet, spreading the vibrant life force through my veins, up every limb, and down my arms to my palms, filling me full to the crown of my head and shining like a warm, fuzzy halo around me. A thin silver thread, my spiritual umbilical cord, stretched from my belly button through my body and out and up, high above my head, connecting me to my higher self. I followed this lead out of my body. I flew to the ceiling and saw from a bird's eye view the faces and bodies of the sick covered with a crust of oozing yellow scaly fungus. I wept. Around each body, an oily gray film clung, their heartbeats weakening. They were fading. I flew to the side of my love and kissed her shell-pink mouth. I did not know if she or any of them could feel my loving presence, but I bathed them in warm waves of pink light and then envisioned their souls exiting the tops of their physical heads and floating up like feathers, higher and higher, through the top of the dome, twisting and turning, dancing among the stars. I'm a Lynn. We hear troops approaching. They're coming. Dana shook my body, but I was not in that shell. My body slumped to the floor. I flew outside with the souls of the released. I saw rows and rows of tanks and heard shouts and explosions and the grinding of war machines advancing. People cried out in anger and fear. The reptilians hissed. Bodies sprawled, broken and bleeding, some burning, and still... My people fought with rocks and sticks and small knives used for whittling, anything they could find. Hundreds of reptilian troops, some hanging out the windows of their tanks, brandished smoking torches, others shot rays from their TS-4s. My people's anger, fear, and pain threatened to overwhelm me like a wave. I sat cross-legged, floating above the chaos, and I spoke these words. My ancestors... Hear me now. I call on you to fight for my people, to fight for Aina, and to fight for yourselves, to avenge all the blood spilled, not for the nourishment of our people, but for the selfish reasons of another race. Rise up! Rise up from the burn pits in the forest. 
Rise up from the hallowed resting places in your lodges. Rise up from your watery graves. Rise up now, those who died in battle tonight. From their resting places, the dead rose. Some mere skeletons, some half-rotten, some newly dead with fresh wounds. They formed in great battle lines, marching. The reptilians shot at them, but still they advanced, exploding, disintegrating, and regenerating as they came closer and closer, taking out the enemy. My people cheered and fought alongside them. Spirits of the forest, trees, and plants, help us now. Send us your strength in battle. I floated above the melee as a great rumbling shook the earth, and humongous vines and roots erupted from the ground with such force it felt like an earthquake hit. Clods of dirt and rocks rained down everywhere. The air was hazy with purple dust, and people and reptilians lay where they'd fallen, shaken, afraid to get up. But my people soon realized, as did I, that the reptilians' platoons were halted by god-sized roots wrapped around the wheels of their mighty vehicles. Emboldened, my people fought beside their ancestors of Aena against the few remaining reptilians. Tails and limbs lay strewn across the earth. Amongst the battle, I saw Tlaloc fleeing for the safety of the Med Dome. I snapped back into my physical body, just as Dana was about to shoot him. No, I stood up from the floor. Do not kill him. We need him. We will take him and the others still alive as hostages and have Tlaloc contact his ruler back on his planet and make our demands. And then... I paused and grinned at him, but he was too proud to meet my gaze. He stared just over my shoulder. We will kill him, if necessary, but only after he has been tried by tribal council for the crimes he has committed. He will die the old way, by shark. I sneered at him. Keep watch over him while I instruct the rest of our people to dig the prison pits. And with that, I turned my back on him and walked out of the airlock to find my people crying and hugging. My ancestors had returned to their resting places, but the great roots remained, as did the children of the dream root. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Thank you for listening to episode 1115 of The Wicked Library. Today's author was Nora B. Peavy with her story, Children of the Dream Root. Today's story was told by G.P. McKenzie. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I've been your host today. Our Season 11 lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteze, We Talk of Dreams. 
Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, art director and executive producer. Our producer is Meg Williams. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. To find out more about today's contributors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. If you'd like to help us keep bringing you our collection of dark tales, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved.